Welcome everyone. I am Frederick Eriksson and I am one of the directors uh, here at BSIPE and I'm, I'm very pleased to uh, welcome uh, the guest for the conversation that we're going to have, Bruno Massais. We are going to talk about your book from last year, History Has Begun, The Birth of a New America. This is what it looks like for people that haven't seen it previously, at least this is the, the European version of what it looks like. But before we get going, let me just say a few words about you. Bruno got his PhD in political theory from Harvard. I think you were doing a PhD on on the role of adventure in political thought, right? Correct. There's um, a bit of that in the new book, actually. So. Indeed, indeed, I was actually going. To, I was meaning to ask you questions about it. But anyways, sort of, um, you've been uh, Europe Minister for Portugal. Uh, you were that between 2013-2019. You now are non-resident senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and and you are, I'm allowed to say so, a notable thinker and author. I would even go as far as to say that Bruno is one of our time's leading public intellectuals, someone who brings new and original thought to our public discussion, which is unfortunately a bit rare. You've published several books in the past uh, since leaving politics and one of them is The Dawn of Eurasia, uh, a book from a few years ago about the growing integration between Asia and Europe. So now, Bruno, history has begun. As I think I told you by email, I read your book uh, during the Christmas break in just a few days. After I had finished it, I had this moment thinking, my God, Bruno is right. This is what the book is about. And that moment, of course, was the storming of the US Capitol on January the 6th by Trump supporters who had rallied in Washington, D.C. to, at least vocally, reclaim what they thought was a stolen election. Now, correct me if you think I'm wrong, Bruno, but this event, I think, was a pretty stark example of what you are suggesting in your book, that America's political and public culture have changed remarkably in the direction of a sort of a post-truth type of culture, where the norm isn't the blatant lie, but the personalization of truth and the self-embodiment of reality an America that has turned into something of a fantasy land. There were, of course, nasty elements at that rally in D.C. on January the 6th, and we also had several people who died there. But I got the feeling that many people were actually there. Uh, they were just there sort of lapping a coup rather than having a real coup. And they were sort of thinking about it almost as a rare live meetup with different type of people, some weirdos in the social media network. It was sort of something that was both real and unreal at the same time. So can we start there, Bruno? What was your sort of thinking on sort of that late afternoon European time when you saw the pictures coming out from DC? Was it sort of a confirmation of your thesis? Yes, although, as you know, as a writer yourself, we, we do have a certain bias to see confirmations of our theses everywhere, and I'm not an exception to that. But I, I think it was, you know, irrespective of that, I think it was a remarkable event, uh, odd and slightly disturbing, but not in the sense, I think, of a moment where you thought the American Republic was, was in, in danger, a, a kind of a, a Caesar-like moment or of great danger. Uh, I didn't see it that way. I saw it as really a disturbing moment, more in the sense that it was very difficult to make sense of it. 
because obviously there is a crowd that is storming the Capitol that enters the Senate chamber. They could in fact have met a senator that they didn't like and there were a few or more than a few and things could have gone awry. But at the same time, it didn't feel real. And I think everyone would agree with this. We just had a real coup in Myanmar uh, and we can contrast. I don't think there was any danger to the regime. Someone pointed out with some humor that if these things work like a video game, then yes, the characters get to the Senate chamber, they go to the speaker's podium, the room turns green, and you can start to legislate. You know, that's a video game. But in reality, what could have happened at the limit was they would barricade themselves in the Capitol and the um, riot police would come over and perhaps a few more people would have died. But obviously it was not a coup. It was not an organized and illegal seizure of political power. I find it remarkable that the people on the other side, the sharp critics of what happened, actually regard it as a coup. So this narrative that in a way is propagated by, by the people that were there ostensibly to correct the electoral fraud. And so in their minds, that was a kind of coup, but the critics also regard it as a coup. But my framework in the book, which I do think is confirmed by these events, is that American society now lives within fictions, fantasies, and you can jump from one fantasy to the other but in fact, it seems that remarkably few people live outside the fantasies and can see them for what they are. You had this extraordinary fiction of the Trump years of a purely virtual nationalist state. But on the other side, you had the Russia collusion, a Manchurian candidate redux. And that was the book came from that, uh, although it goes back to, to my experience of America as really the land of fictions which is present everywhere in American literature. If this was a longer book, which it may become in a second edition, I think Moby Dick would be a good place to, to look at that. It's everywhere in American culture since the very beginning, I think. It has just now, I think, become the center of the political regime rather than operating on the margins as entertainment, which is by definition the, the non-core part of a society. I think now it's moved to the core. And how did that happen? Why the centrality of these type of thoughts right now? Is it Trump? Is it technology? Or is it something else that you would point to as sort of a, the midwifing factors that help to give this sort of type right. of political thought more centrality? Right. These questions of how societies evolve are very delicate and very difficult. And we still don't have the theories and the mental frameworks that, that uh, would make us entirely uh, happy and satisfied. It's certainly a lot about technology. I am a bit of a technological determinist. Certainly technology has created a condition where you can live as if reality does not exist. And where, in fact, the question of whether it does exist has become quite relevant. So it's not that when you're living a fantasy, you are inside your own mind or you've lost contact with the real world. I think it's deeper than that. There's a question of whether, in fact, reality has not disappeared and whether people who live in their own fantasies are not closer to experience as it manifests itself today than, than those who still uh, cling to an idea of uh, objective truth. 
So I think technology made that possible to a great extent by pushing away the forces of the physical real world. COVID is an interesting hiccup in this narrative. So technology is important, but I also believe that uh, civilizations have a kind of a germ, have an initial impetus. And then it takes a long time, often centuries, for that to fully develop. It's almost as if uh, a, a vehicle is pushed in a certain direction. Uh, and the initial impetus is important. There's a germinating idea, which then um, can develop and probably will have to develop because that's how, how things are created originally. So I also am very attracted by those theories of civilization. As you can see in the book, I don't try to hide it. And there's a lot of Spangler and Toynbee in, in the way I look at these things. So I am uh, fascinated and simultaneously convinced by this very Spanglerian idea that civilizations are organized around an idea, an idea that you can describe in a sentence. And on the one hand, I find this perhaps not very compelling. How can you describe a whole civilization in a sentence? But on the other hand, very seductive and very attractive. So all my books are in fact attempts to, to do this kind of exercise. And this book, you know, it would be easy to find a sentence in the book where I actually try to describe, as I call it in the preface, the secret of American civilization in just one sentence. And of course, uh, that sentence would be something like America has since the beginning even before uh, 1776, uh, since the pilgrims, been in a war against reality, it has taken up the project uh, more and more deeply than any other civilization to eliminate reality from human life and therefore to live in fantasy life. This is what America is about. And, and I try to, let's see if this works uh, as a premise and let's see if it helps us understand America, even though of course, there's something, there's a bit of an intellectual wager here. You pursue this premise to the end and it may not work perfectly, but I'm always convinced that it's better to, to have this kind of intellectual wager and pursue something that is uh, intellectually risky than just to sort of uh, combine in a very syncretic whole, lots of contradictory uh, theories and elements. So the book is kind of attempts to be kind of limpid in that way of going from a, B to C to Z eventually. Indeed it is. And I think that's also what make it, makes it so interesting. And of course, I appreciate everyone who works in that tradition of conjectures and refutations. I mean, it, it is, as you say, it is risky, but that's basically how we also advance uh, our own analysis and our, our own thoughts. Uh, before going into history, let me just stay on Trump for a bit and talk a little bit about him and perhaps his role here. So, I mean, I, th I think my question is, it may sound a bit strange to some, but what was or perhaps what is, would you say, sort of the political or even the philosophical essence of Donald J. Trump? I mean, some people would see him as sort of a simple autocrat, let alone a fascist. Uh, others perhaps will say that, no, he's just a, you know, a narcissistic fool who sought the presidency just because he was bored by doing other things. I think I heard someone saying something pretty witty, which is that, well, you know, everything he says becomes logical if you just preface his rants by saying, and now, Donny from Queens, you're on the air. But is there perhaps something more significant to him that a lot of us may have neglected? Something which sort of you think connect with the, the main narrative of your book? 
Yes, it is. Try to define Trumpism. Also an interesting question, because obviously there's going to be a lot of debate uh, about whether Trumpism is going to return and uh, under what guise and perhaps whether there'll be a successor of some kind in America or elsewhere, although I think more possibly in America and perhaps already in 2024. I would define Trumpism not as a form of authoritarianism, but in a way almost the opposite. I think Trump represents an extreme version of freedom. Uh, freedom unconstrained by anything and eventually even by reality itself so that you are able to make up uh, all kinds of stories. Uh, his book, Art of the Deal, is actually quite explicit about that. I mean, that's kind of the best way to do business, but eventually the best way to live, ultimately the best way to live is a kind of a Socratic exploration there. It's just to make up stuff, uh, to make up stories, to make up uh, your own, to try to pursue your own fantasies uh, without any limits, without any aesthetic limits. Uh, you know, if you think this is what you like to do with your life, do it. Don't, don't care about whether it's tacky or not, uh, without any limits about uh, political correctness. But even more, you know, there's this debate whether political correctness is really good manners or not. And I'm on the side of those who think it has nothing to do with good manners. But for Trump, it doesn't even matter because he wants to get rid of PC, but he also wants to get rid of good manners. You, you do what you feel like doing. And his uh, supporters, I think, uh, understand this. Uh, every time I see a, a strong supporter on, on, on camera talking about Trump, it's this idea of extreme freedom. The people who walk into a convenience store don't want to wear a mask. They want to wear a mask because, you know, this is my life. This is the movie of my life. Everyone else rotates around me and adapts to what I do as if you are in your dreams where everything adapts to the wish fulfillment on your part and the characters in the dream are there to as Freud would say help you pursue that wish fulfillment and so living life like a dream is is what Trumpism is about he's not an authority figure and people are actually very puzzled by this because they say, you know this is a form of authoritarianism but how can authoritarianism be represented by a figure that is not an authority figure at all Barack Obama, in this interview he gave to Jeffrey Goldberg in The Atlantic, is very puzzled by this. You know, he's like, I, I thought authoritarianism could arrive in America. I never thought it could arrive with a figure like Donald Trump because he's not an authority figure. He's not someone who projects an image of toughness, of endurance, of authority, of manliness, all the opposite. He projects an image of caprice, of uh, egocentrism, a kind of a juvenile way of looking at the world, juvenile in a bad way, but also in a good way that appeals to all of us in a way. And so Trump has that strong appeal. I don't think it's represented by Tom Cotton or who really is more of an authority figure. We'll see if someone takes up this. Um, in a way, you know, even Alessandro Ocasio-Cortez, I think he's closer to this idea of freedom without limits, of storytelling. So this is present all over American society, and it's entirely possible that you could have a Trumpism on the left, because the way I define Trumpism, it, it's not particularly a right-wing ideology. It's just wish fulfillment, fantasy, storytelling, fiction, and that can be on the left or on the right. And wokeness is, has a lot of this performance and, and all that. Yep, indeed. So let's turn to history, Bruno, and um, and talk about the political tradition that you sort of forms a, a, a basis for your historical analysis of the development of America and how 
now sort of this this um, uh, dreamland America is becoming more of a central feature of today. So if we think about sort of a typical European perspective on America, I think we would point to two main political traditions. One, of course, comes from the Constitution and the Founding Fathers, inspired by European political thought. And they were anchoring an American traditional natural rights and reason in, in US politics. Another version perhaps is a little bit more modern, or at least it comes later than uh, than 776 and the Federalist Papers. And it's it's more about progressive nationalism, of course, also inspired by European thought, but this time I think more by Germany and sort of post-Kantian type of, of German philosophy. But in America, we would associate that tradition with Woodrow Wilson and sort of the growth of a new type of progressive narrative for, for America. Now, you suggest there is a third tradition, and you point to William James, the philosopher. You, you write quite long about Sinclair Lewis and his book, Babbitt. And, and you outline sort of here a tradition which is more uniquely American. It's not an import from Europe. So what is this, this tradition, and what does it basically contend? It is not unconnected to the Enlightenment. I see it as a progeny of the Enlightenment, uh, as um, a way of looking at the world that starts from the Enlightenment, but tries to take it further and solve some, some of its insufficiencies. So American civilizations grafted on European civilization, but starting from it, it takes it further. And it's not uh, as Europe is satisfied with the Enlightenment as the end of the story. And the Enlightenment was an ideology of freedom. Try to eliminate all obstacles to human freedom, uh, family, kinship, uh, aristocracy, um, political obstacles, convention, tradition, and religion, I think, uh, more than anything else. Uh, and you end up with kind of natural men of different kinds in European thinkers, either in the state of nature or spontaneous uh, natural man in each. Uh, but you end up with some kind of irreducible uh, core natural element of the human. I think America wants to get rid of that natural man and get rid of, of nature or facts or truth as the last obstacle to human freedom. And so in the sense, it's what the Enlightenment becomes when it takes seriously the idea of freedom. But it's no longer the Enlightenment, uh, because what's core to the Enlightenment, uh, knowledge of science, truth, and facts, uh, disappears in this new way of looking at the world. And I find this is, um, as I call it, the secret of American civilization, present a little bit here and there, but never fully conscious. And I don't think one could point towards a political philosopher that represents this. There are powerful elements. Uh, usually it's the most interesting elements in American political thinkers, uh, like John Rawls. It's there. And it's usually what makes the philosophy alive. Uh, but what happens is that there's also a lot of the European tradition still there. Uh, I think America has still not become fully conscious of this. Uh, the intellectual classes are, of course, still, although that is changing, very Europeanized, and, but they were and uh, they, they came to Europe to study. Uh, and so the process has, I think, naturally been slow and difficult. But Trump, in that sense, will help uh, because it will force American society and particularly 
commentators and intellectuals to try to think more deeply, well, is this really an enlightenment uh, European style constitutional democracy? Because in such a regime, things like January 6th are not supposed to happen. On the other hand, I don't think you can argue either that January 6th shows that America is really a developing country or a Latin America incomplete democracy. Because what happened wasn't a real coup. It was an ironic coup. And so we still don't quite understand what kind of regime is this that looks like a kind of a fantasy dictatorship, but not a real dictatorship, and where coups look like fantasy coups, but not real coups. It's not Europe, but it's not Russia or Iran either. It's an ironic Russia or Iran uh, of some kind where even religion is different from religion in Europe, but also different from religion in Iran. So the book tries to figure out a way to explain America because it has become very difficult to explain it in the traditional framework that we have available. Would you say, I mean, can we point to a few other sort of streams of political development in America to, and see sort of if, to what extent they connected with sort of this, this line of thought that you're talking about. I mean, when I was reading your book, I thought about 19th century America and sort of being in that period somewhere between the founding fathers, uh, the Enlightenment projects, before we go into the 20th century with Woodrow Wilson, what happens later with FDR and sort of the, 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 the big progressive projects. And you had sort of, you had, you know, people like William Jennings Bryan, you had Theodore Roosevelt, you had sort of a populist party tradition, which is, you know, manifesting itself in, in different ways. It, it wasn't sort of populist in necessarily in the sense of being deeply anti-establishmentarian or so it was, but, but it had its sort of as putting a premium on the type of man who lives close to nature, who uh, lives on the countryside, is typically a farmer, sort of in Jeffersonian style sort of it something ascetic with the fact that you are harvesting your own food rather than going into city to to buy it but you know figures like tr roosevelt of course had all that sort of fantasy land image over him with sometimes being sort of this uh, uh cowboy who rides into different parts of america in order to broker some order and some peace peddling fantasies about himself, of course, uh, as well as about America. So is there sort of the 19th century populist tradition as it is evolving then, is, is, is that something akin to what you're talking about? Yes, I think there's this very powerful impetus to get away, get away from things as they are, get away from reality. And, and this, um, this trope, uh, this uh, emotion really is, is present uh, on many occasions and in many places in American history and American society. You know, I suggest in the book, not, not more than a suggestion, that it's present at the very beginning. That when the pilgrims uh, leave England, uh, well, there was the option not to leave. Uh, one could have stayed and tried to change English society. And actually, those who stayed ended up changing English society precisely in the direction that, that the pilgrims wanted in, in many respects. Uh, at least level of religious freedom and economic equality. And that was the project of the Enlightenment. But the problem with the project of the Enlightenment is that it is very difficult, very complex. Uh, it takes a long time, more than 
a human lifetime to transform a society, it's much easier, much more appealing to leave. And this is not get to leave reality behind, just to leave a particular society behind. But that it keeps being repeated in American history. The other, the, the next interesting moment, and that links to your topic of, of progressivism. Well, when European societies get really dragged into this question of capital and, and capitalism and the worker and the necessary oppression of the worker and their capitalist system, which is a real a real question in the 19th century, it might not be a real question in 1970, but it's a real question in the 19th century. The way it's solved is through a radical project of, of social and economic transformation. But in America, it was solved in a different way. The worker, particularly in New England uh, and in industrialized areas in the East, uh, was able to leave and, and go to the Wild West uh, and receive a plot of land or start on, on some other path uh, or perhaps a gold digger. And this becomes very central to the American psyche that the solution to social problems is to leave society. How many movies could one list here that have this topic, American movies? Uh, doesn't mean that this is not present in, in European culture. Often, however, it's present precisely as an influence of American society that European uh, creators don't quite understand, but they're attracted by it. Uh, obvious area is all those um, French uh, artists and, and philosophers after the war from Sartre to Godard who obviously under enormous influence of this this idea of leaving and many Godard movies of that time are about that as well so it's it's present in Europe but as, as a reflection of American society so the solution is on the one hand you can leave and you don't have to engage in this very risky and difficult project of revolution that could could go very badly and in fact in Europe went in very badly in all kinds of ways from Nazi Germany to Soviet Russia to um, troubles of the different French republics and so on. America escaped this. Why did it escape this? Because by then it was actually choosing a different path, a different way to solve what was essentially the same problem. So I think this is present in the kind of populist populism of, uh, of early 20th century American. People who, on the one hand, don't want to accept things as they are, but they're also not interested in spending their lives agitating, organizing, uh, and changing society. They want it now. The Trumpian instinct is actually already there in that culture. And then this is taken up in all kinds of ways because at the same time that, that you have um, this strong populist movement, the third party and so on, you also have Hollywood, which is uh, on the same track and uh, perfecting these images of what life could be and creating this very powerful effect of the person. I think this is described in that great novel called The Moviegoer, whose author I momentarily forget. This experience of going to the movie theater, then the lights come on and you leave the movie theater and there's all these ideas of what life could be bubbling up in your, in your mind. And it's almost like a powerful drug, which then has its influence in American society. So I think this is the thread that is distinctive. There are many other threads in, in American history and American society, but this is really the thread that is distinctive. And when you try to explain something that is distinctive about American society, for example, in this case, why was there no socialism and no communism in America? It used to be a very interesting question for academics and social thinkers. Uh, I mean, every time there is a question of why is America so different from Europe? I 
pretty confident that in all, all those times you can explain it through this idea of fantasy. So what about the 1960s and the 1970s where you say that was a formative period for this line of thinking about escape, breaking free, etc. I mean, we have, and I saw you reference that book in your, in your book as well, the book Fantasyland by Kurt Anderson, who's basically making that thesis that also tracks a development through American history, but something happens in the 1960s, sort of a combination of popular culture, psychology with the way that Freud and others get interpreted in the 1960s and basically walks into political thought and that that changes things. I'm personally a little bit un, uncertain about sort of uh, of the 1960s and that political period as as very formative but there's certainly something which happens in the 1970s with and I think perhaps the the one who's written most fun about it is Tom Wolfe. Uh, he had a an essay which I think was called the me the me decade and the third great awakening talking about this me 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 culture that grows in America and what he's basically saying is that there is a new religious creed in this sort of counter counter revolution that that starts then but perhaps more what's more important with it is that it's modernized and individualized the way that Americans understood God and Jesus so Religion, Bruno. What what does what what role does religion play? Uh, not in sort of the Puritans and what happened sort of in in 17th, 18th century, but but in more modern times. What role does religion play for this new America that you see emerging? Big, big fundamental role. You know, I I would even be interested in uh, exploring whether it is not religion that explains these differences, because as as Tocqueville already pointed out. What was very distinctive about America was how religion seemed to thrive and survive. And that was very odd for Tocqueville, but, but I think for, for us, because there was an obvious incompatibility between the Enlightenment and religion. One had to win and the other had to lose. And in Europe, the Enlightenment won and religion lost. It's very obvious to me, but perhaps not to everyone, that religion lost in Europe, that what we have it helps here a little bit to come still from what was when I was born a very conservative and traditional country and religion meant something different from what it means in contemporary Europe. So religion had to change to adapt to the point of no longer being recognizable. It lost this battle. And in America, it didn't seem even to be a battle. The two things seemed to be compatible, freedom or democracy or the enlightenment and, uh, and religion. And Tocqueville was very intrigued by this. I don't particularly not particularly impressed by his uh, answer to this question. And, and my answer is, uh, well, religion also changed in America so that it would be compatible with uh, a modern democracy, but in a different direction. Rather than being really uprooted and transformed into a purely intellectual matter uh, as it is in Europe, uh, it became fantasy as well. But that allows religion in America to have a certain intensity that it doesn't have in Europe. Because after all, fantasy and even role-playing can become the real thing. And you can forget that it is fantasy, which is both an opportunity and a, and a risk uh, if you forget that it is fantasy. But it is very possible in American society to experience religion as religion would be experienced in a theocracy like Iran. Uh, many people in many parts of America experience religion in a similar way. No, it is not a theocracy. Again, just like the coup is not a real coup, 
this theocracy is not a real theocracy, but in those living it, it is experienced as much more intense and deeper than it is in Europe. And in this sense, I think American society ends up developing a very ingenious solution. Things can be experienced with a depth that they cannot in a liberal uh, modern European society, but you don't run the risk of authoritarianism. You don't run the risk of turning these fantasies into reality. You are not going to become Iran. But at the same time, you are not Sweden, where uh, religion, uh, you know, be curious how you would describe it yourself, but either entirely disappears or becomes a form of just a, a personal belief uh, of some kind uh, in which no one is really interested outside yourself and about which you don't talk and, and, and so on. So not religion as it, as it's, it is supposed to be uh, and was uh, throughout human history and still is in many parts of the world. So America ends up with this uh, remarkable solution. You can experience everything as deeply as you want, as immersive as you want, provided you don't try to turn it into reality. And in this society, which is kind of three-dimensional, there is space for many different experiences to live together because they don't operate at this. That's why I mean by three-dimensional. They don't operate at the same level of reality. They have different levels of reality, uh, different multiverses. And it's a powerful idea, I think, uh, which allows both for stability, to have a, a society and a regime that survives even Trump, uh, but for an intensity of experience that Europe doesn't have. Again, I think Trump shows that because in terms of the possibilities that are open to the political regime and the intensity of these political experiences, you can attempt to do things in Europe, in, in America that you cannot do in Europe. Is that a bad or a good thing? My book is different from most books on this topic, including Kurt Anderson, because I present this as a positive thing. Overall, the fact that you have Trump, even though you may consider these four years a waste of time and uh, uh, offensive to your values or so on and so forth, if you detach yourself from the immediate uh, experience of, of the Trump years, I think it is still possible to admire and recognize that a society that can swerve into these extreme directions and then come back to the middle and remain stable is in some respects a remarkable society. And that's something like Trump could have broken apart any European country, uh, its political regime would never have recovered. So what is this society that can have this range of experience without losing balance in some way. Uh, it is remarkable, and this is not a dysfunction, contrary to what Kurt Anderson and uh, Timothy Snyder argue, but it's, a, it's not a bug, it's a feature of the American regime, which we have, first of all, to understand, and if we're so inclined to actually admire. Yep, indeed. So, Bruno, where do we go from here now? How do you see, sort of in, in this analysis, how do you see America developing politically as a consequence of sort of greater centrality for this sort of political philosophy? Is it an America which comes more sort of libertarian, more closer to anarchism? Or is it an America that wants to sort of reinvent tradition, structure and order sort of of, of a kind perhaps that people like Woodrow Wilson, FDR, and others represented in, in, in the early 20th century. 
Right. So I think that's the big gap in my book that would need to be corrected either by a second volume or a second edition. Uh, I would need to go deeper into the question of how, how do we build institutionally a society that promotes, recognizes, but also organizes fiction? And that's a very difficult question, uh, which you cannot solve in, in a couple of weeks, uh, but I would have to write or someone else uh, that gets convinced I am correct about the general premise, have to write a kind of federalist papers for the fantasy society with an institutional framework that a, a fantasy society would need. Because I think what we have now in America is you have the uh, institutional constitutional architecture of essentially an enlightened society which is really under strain uh, to operate under what is a fantasy society. It's still delivering fundamentally, which shows the affinity between an enlightened society and a fantasy society. Uh, perhaps also some of those institutions have been adapted throughout the centuries to, to the American spirit, but clearly is not fit for purpose and it will have to be adapted because I don't regard, even though I don't think what happened on January 6th was a tragedy, I still regard it as a crisis of some kind. And clearly a society cannot work through this political boom and bust cycles where fantasies are entertained rather lightly at first, then lots of people become convinced they are actually real. And then they, they once they convince they're real, they start to act in the world in what is vaguely a deranged manner. And then precisely because these extreme fantasies have no way of becoming real, what happens, just like an, an, an overpriced and over, overbought uh, stock has no chance of sustaining that value, what happens is that there will be a collapse of the fiction, which, you know, we could see coming. We knew that Trump would collapse. He would not disappear softly. He would have to collapse. And there was some anxiety. I never had any doubts that he would collapse, but there was some anxiety about how, what form will the collapse take? Uh, you know, he could have like left the country in exile or... The collapse took the form of January 6th, and it was still a crisis and still not a way to work, to, to operate a, a functional society. Because then, you know, in five years from now, you can have a, a different fiction grow and collapse and go from, from one fiction to another, like a completely out of balance stock market. So we do need some way to keep these fictions in check, not to bring people to reality, but to bring people to fiction not to allow them to cross the line where they get convinced that actually there is this cabal of child molesters who stole the election and the patriots will go to Washington and correct the historical injustice. So one has, I, I do think there was some awareness among many of these people that this was a fiction, which they were enjoying and playing along. If there wasn't some awareness, you would have had millions on the street. And the whole thing, once it once it collapsed on January 6th, it kind of went away, but still many took it seriously. And there has to be a better way, probably by having a kind of balance of fictions. You have to allow other fictions to, to grow so that they can balance each other out. Just as in James Madison in The Federalist argues that you need to have many different factions so that none becomes a majority. You need many different fictions so that none of them becomes a majority. Uh, that is the solution, but how do you create the institutional framework to make that work? If I knew the answer, there would have been a, 
an extra couple chapters, but I don't quite know the answer to that yet. All right, we, we're looking forward to the next version of the book, Bruno. Uh, in the meanwhile, I'd like to ask you a question, Bruno, which is um, about Europe. So what do you think about sort of the likelihood that now when America is breaking free from its own European tradition, that Europe actually wants to join America into a new type of fictitious political development? I mean, after all, I mean, most parts of Europe are basically post-religious now in the sense that we don't have organized fiction as someone called it uh, once there's a lot of sort of new type of developments with personal spirituality with personal faith strong belief in sort of um, a type of dystopian thinking around nature and what's going to happen to earth which certainly lends itself to political fiction of one kind it may not be sort of a type of fiction where you create space for individuals to be heroic or to dream themselves away into a different type of reality but but it's certainly sort of a fertile soil for thinking sort of outside the boundaries of enlightenment political thought i'd say my reading of european politics is that sort of the fictitious elements of nationalism is stronger here still than it is in america and it's growing faster here than it does in america and even if it's not about blood and soil of of the old kind it is sort of an imaginary form of of reality which uh, you know appeals to a larger part of the of the electorate these days um, so what do you say i mean is it is is this sort of a is America breaking with European tradition? But do you think, is there a, a, a potential Atlantic spiritual, political, fictitious future here where they are both going in the same direction? No, I think they are, they are drifting apart. Um, now, I, I, you know, I, I say in the preface that I still think there's something like a, a transatlantic affinity, but it's a dynamic one. It's not that Europe and America are the same. It's that, in a way, they are part of the same story and that uh, what is distinctive about america still comes out of the european story we talked a lot about that today already so it's um it's a dynamic relationship but it's a close relationship just not a, a relationship of similarity of equality because i think you know i it'd be interesting to discuss this more as listen attentively to, to to your your descriptions but when i look to europe right now i see almost the opposite of what we've been describing about america there is a fixation of truth on truth our conclusion from nazism uh, and fascism and, and sovietism is that we need facts uh, that we need facts in order to reduce the role of force in politics what is distinctive about Europe over the last few decades? Um, there are many things that are old and there are relics of all kinds of things, but the new developments have above all to do with the European Union and the European Union is uh, the opposite of fantasy politics. It's the attempt to have an algorithmic, fact-based, evidence-based procedure without human interference in many cases and we saw that uh, with the vaccines no one wants to take any kind of decision the algorithm runs by itself and it's all about about facts facts rules uh, rule following and so on a computer program uh, so not at all the same your countrywoman greta her cry of heart create the is also listen to the science listen to the scientists so i see european culture today 
as being very representative of a hyper theory of truth, uh, very naive in some respects, uh, and very contrary to the European philosophical tradition that had demonstrated that that this doesn't work. And in a way, it is a fiction, but a fiction that people are not aware of. Uh, but it is it is a, a theory of truth, uh, Europe today. And that, I think, explains why it's so difficult for Europeans to understand what's happening in America, because what they find there is the opposite. And uh, there's a certain fascination, but it's the kind of fascination that you have watching something that is so foreign, so exotic, and that you would never want for yourself. Uh, it's a kind of a holiday where, where you go to a strange part of the world, but you never dream of staying there. And that's different because we're the same age. And uh, I think when we were 18 or 20, there really was a powerful American influence in Europe. People on the right were fascinated by Reagan and how to bring those free market ideas to Europe. People on the left were fascinated by Clinton and how to build a socialism that actually works and so on and so forth. So, uh, you know, a young um, political person in Europe uh, back then, in the 90s in particular, was actively interested in seeing how to bring some of those ideas to Europe. I mean, would anyone in Europe today be interested in looking at what's happening in America and see how you can bring those ideas? Because, you know, from Trump to the woke left, it just sounds so unintelligible. It's true that in Britain, some of these ideas have, have, have some currency, but in continental Europe, I don't think wokeness has any currency. Trump has very little currency, even among the far right. When I say this in podcasts, People actually sometimes bring up the, the Sweden Democrats, but I, I don't think uh, it's really, uh, there's a really great affinity in the end. Obviously, if you have an American president that, that is different from the traditional kind, you're interested in it, but um, people are not actively trying to imitate America anymore. There is an awareness that the two countries are very different. There is, on the European side, an inability and actually lack of interest in trying to understand what is happening there from guns to religion to Trump to wokeness. Uh, this all seems too exotic. So I think American life, culture, and politics now for Europeans is becoming something similar to Japanese tea ceremony or, or to Indian spirituality. You have an interest in something that is exotic and foreign in a different worlds, and you just look in awe and fascination uh, at all these things. But this is not what America used to represent. America used to represent the future that we want for ourselves. And I think that's no longer the case. So clearly something has changed, which will have uh, some political implications. Macron, for example, I think when he talks about strategic autonomy, he actually starts from a philosophical premise that uh, Europe and America are about different things now. Uh, he's quite explicit about this, and I think he's roughly right, which I don't think has geopolitical implications as such, uh, because if you have a rising China or an aggressive revisionist Russia, uh, that's the immediate problem Europe and America have to solve. They don't have to agree on the meaning of life, uh, but I think they don't agree on the meaning of life anymore. Finally, Bruno, I mean, let's talk a little bit more about the geopolitics, or to start from a different point of view. So... I mean, America has always been a magnet for different people around the world who, you know, people who, who they, they woke up and, and thought that, you know what, I, I actually want to be an American. So in that new America that you see growing now, what, what parts of the world are going to get attracted to America? Because 
I mean, the type of truth wars or the type of uh, self-reality wars, I mean, you can see them playing out in different parts of the world as well. I mean, we can, we can talk about China and what actually happens in China in terms of truth and fiction there. There are other parts of the world where you're going to have sort of a milder versions of the same thing. But I would imagine sort of that in this new America, there will still be people around the world who wake up and think they want to be American because that, that new fiction in itself is attractive to some, right? Right. So obviously, that there is something in contemporary America that connects very profoundly to, to the human soul or, or the human psyche. There's a very strong appeal. You know, I don't say this in the book, but I thought about it since it came out. Uh, in a way, America is realizing humanity's oldest and deepest dream uh, to leave reality behind. That's what human beings are destined for as opposed to uh, animals and other creatures. So America, in that sense, is a human project. But I think it's being taken up by America in a way that it's not being taken up by anyone else, by any other society. But it can appeal to individuals, of course. I think every young person anywhere in the world that is an active fantasy life uh, and has these dreams that, that, that he wants not so much to make real, but actually to live as dreams. It could be the tech billionaire. It could be the progressive social activist slash musician. It could be the crypto inventor. That, that still has an appeal. I think it operates at, at the level of society as such, but many individuals are obviously attracted by it. And we saw, for example, with how Silicon Valley, which represents many of these ideas, and by the way, it goes back to the 70s, like many of these things do, coming out at the same time as Easy Rider is coming out. Uh, Silicon Valley had a very strong appeal and you had people trying to mimic it in, in many different parts of the world, the idea that you can create a, a new world from scratch. And these companies are essentially new worlds being created, new universes, uh, even their names and are, are trying to represent that. Uh, new stars being born. So I think this is true. That has not disappeared. I, I think that's always been the appeal of America, deep down. There were many people who were attracted to a political regime where individual freedoms were solidly protected. But I think most of the people that were attracted to America were attracted to this idea of the dream, of the fantasy, of Hollywood, of Disneyland, of Las Vegas, all these uh, prophecies of a world where your life feeds directly on, on, your, on your fantasies, which is not possible anywhere else in the world. And really, finally, finally, Bruno, do you see geopolitical friction growing around America as a consequence of um, the new America? Or do you see sort of a, an America who's going to seek more appeasement and tone, tone down its, its own tradition of being sort of the supreme leader of a liberal empire? Right. I, I do discuss that in the book. Uh, I think, you know, the last... Um... 20 years have also been fantasy land in American foreign policy. That, by the way, was explicitly affirmed by this incredible exchange between Carl Rove and a journalist, uh, where it says, you, the reality-based community, you don't understand America anymore. We don't live in reality. We create our reality. And that's what the Iraq war is about. Uh, it's all a story. You know, I've, I've never quite understood understood what it was about, but it was essentially about building a story in the end, a story where the hero is attacked behind his back, um, but gets up again and teaches the offender a lesson. 
and does a number of great deeds abroad and comes back home covered in glory. It's almost like the most schematic element of, of human narratives throughout history. The kind of uh, the Arthurian romance uh, is like this. Uh, you know, you could describe the Iraq war as a, as a sort of a Knights of the Round Table kind of story. This has been very destructive. So when I argue fantasy is a good thing, uh, again, if it doesn't, if it is not organized in the right way, it can be extraordinarily destructive on January 6th, and, and, and the Iraq war is another example. Now, where do we go from this paradigm? And, you know, I would hope, and so I argue in the book, uh, that in fact, if you have a very strong sense of fantasy, that perhaps you would be comfortable with a world where the important thing is to balance different human experiences of human adventures, but you're not trying to change the world, just as Americans are not trying to change American society and have not tried for more than a century. Just let, let, let it as it is and pursue your own fantasies, but don't try to make society better, which is the approach a European takes. Well, don't try to make the world better. There's a, a striking contradiction today between American domestic politics, uh, where there's no liberal consensus, no one agrees about anything, even the most fundamental values are up for grabs, where the extremes are thriving, and then an American foreign policy where there's a, a very clear-cut centrist consensus about values. So we want to get someone like Mike Pompeo, he, he seems completely schizophrenic. Because he goes around the world saying that, uh, you know, you shouldn't arrest this journalist because journalists and free press are essential, sacred in a free society. And then he goes back home and says, you know, journalists are a depraved kind and they, 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 need, they need to disappear if you want to make America great again. This incredible contradiction of American society that is comfortable with all kinds of ideas and has no way to determine what are the best. So half the country thinks that Trump is great and the other half thinks he's the fascist. This kind of society then goes out into the world and says, here are the 13 principles of political truth. I mean, it's incredible how you can have this contradiction. Now, the contradiction can be solved in two ways. Either American society becomes like this image that is projected onto the world. You know, you have the 13 principles of political freedom applied very consensually. There's no chance this is going to happen. Or then American foreign policy becomes more like American domestic politics, more tolerant of radical difference, and only concerned with one thing, balance. So if China wants to have this kind of regime, up to them, but they cannot destabilize their neighborhood or the rest of the world, or they cannot become a threat to other political experiences that are being pursued elsewhere. But we have no interest. We're actually quite interested in what's happening in China. It's, it's a great story, but, it, but you know, it, it is only a story, and there are many other stories. So I think it would be possible to build an American foreign policy that is also rooted in fiction, but not the kind of juvenile fictions of the Knights of the Round Table going abroad to perform heroic deeds. Um, we need more like the imagination of a novelist than the imagination of a, a, a writer of of children's tales. So we have to go from the writer of children's tales to a novelist that can incorporate the whole universe to keep the different pieces in balance. If American foreign policy could become this, 
maybe it can. I think there's no other way. So I'm kind of watching and seeing if he can become that. All right, Bruno. Thank you so much. This has been Bruno Massais talking about his book, History Has Begun, The Birth of New America. It was a great pleasure, Bruno. Thank you so much for taking your time.